The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted pedophile and accused sex trafficker who surrounded himself with an elite network of political leaders, wannabe billionaire types, and even scientists. He committed suicide over the weekend. Katha Pollitt has been thinking about the people who have been named in court documents as having accepted invitations from Jeffrey Epstein and also had sex with the underage girls he provided. Also, last week, after the El Paso killings by a white nationalist, Tucker Carlson said on Fox News that white supremacy was, quote, not a real problem in America. He called it, quote, a hoax, just like the Russia hoax. John Nichols will comment on white nationalism in American politics going back to the election of Barack Obama. But first, Bernie or bust. If Bernie does not get the nomination, the Democratic Socialists of America will not endorse the Democrat who does. That's what they decided at their recent convention. But is that a good idea? For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So it was more than a 1,000 activists from across the country who went to Atlanta for what was the largest deliberative gathering of the radical left in, I guess, in generations. For 2020, they voted a policy of Bernie or bust. And our question for you is, do you think that was a good idea? Well, I'm of two minds, but before both of those minds get exposed, I just want to clarify, they weren't just activists. They were elected delegates, so they were more than, they were a little over a 1,000, and they represented the 56,000 members that DSA has managed to accumulate, uh, about 50,000 of them in the last uh, four years. So uh, this is an organization of uh, basically new members, most of them young, and that's who came to the Atlanta Convention. So I'm of two minds about the endorsement decision. Mine number one, speaking as someone who's been a member of DSA and uh, one of its predecessor organizations, DSOC, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, for the past 44 years, uh, I, this was uh, almost prenatal on my part, joining, okay. uh, joining the organization. So the, the veteran DSA member uh, in me says, gee, since the uh, fundamental uh, fight of, of our time is to rid the nation of uh, its first genuinely neo-fascist president, who's very dangerous, and four more years of him could make this nation almost unrecognizable in terms of what's legal, what's not, and the number of people living here who are suffering as a result. I, I, I wish they had understood this and done uh, in, in sort of the tradition of previous left organizations, certainly the Communist Party during the New Deal and World War II, which, which was basically pro-Roosevelt, had uh, not taken this, uh, this stance. So that's, that, that's one half of my sensibility. The other half uh, isn't the 44-year uh, member of the organization and its predecessor. It's the part of my mind that is the political consultant part, which I actually was at some point from my late 20s through my mid-30s. And that is to say uh, the Democratic nominee, other than Bernie, needs DSA's endorsement like a hole in the head. Uh -huh. um, it, it, it would only further uh, estrange uh, some number of voters gratuitously. It would be something that the Democratic nominee uh, 
whoever it would be, would be asked about at every stop by the media. Uh, it, it, it won't help. So I'm, of, uh, I'm definitely of two minds on this, and uh, uh, n- neither mind has, uh, has the real upper hand. The saving <laughs> grace yes. that I suspect most members individually will work for the Democratic nominee uh, this isn't, to paraphrase Rosa Luxemburg, uh, a struggle unless it's Bernie, even, even if it is Bernie. It isn't a struggle between socialism and barbarism, but it is a struggle against barbarism. And let's just recall that Bernie himself, although he is a democratic socialist and not a member of the Democratic Party, had, at least in 2016, the opposite idea from Bernie or Bust. He campaigned tirelessly for Hillary after she won the nomination, including in the states that she should have gone to, Michigan and Wisconsin. Yeah, absolutely. And and Bernie's non-membership, I think, is a form of his loyalty to the politics of his youth, because he's campaigned, I think, exclusively for Democrats whenever there's been a party designation for an office. And I don't recall uh, his campaigning for any Greens running against Democrats at any level of government. So you're right, it's not Bernie's position. I, I, would, I feel safe making a prophecy that AOC will campaign for the Democratic nominee, whoever it is. Uh, and there were uh, 20 elected officials who were DSA members at the convention who staged a press conference, and they basically indicated that they were fine with campaigning for whoever the Democratic nominee was. But on the other hand, this is a socialist organization that wants to support socialists for elective office. There, there's a certain logic to that. There is a certain logic to that, but uh, this is an election which will determine... Uh, whether the nation becomes radically more repressive or rolls back some of those repressions. Uh, This is an exceptional set of circumstances. So what happens if Joe Biden wins the nomination? Is DSA just going to sit out this election? Well, the national organization is. The locals will probably, particularly in swing states, do some form of campaigning, at least against Trump. That's what they did in 2016 in swing states. DSA locals uh, activated themselves, uh, uh, you know, against Trump and some of them for Hillary. And uh, a lot of uh, members uh, campaigned for Hillary regardless of the position of the national organization. And the position of the national organization doesn't preclude, uh, it makes no statement about what members can or, or can't do. It assumes, I think, frankly, that most members will do something uh, in the fall campaign for the Democrat. And I I take as a model of what uh, the organization should do a statement released by the Atlanta local of DSA during uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor. Now, you will recall that every progressive organization, not only in Georgia but outside Georgia, was campaigning for Stacey Abrams. A lot of volunteers came from out of state. Uh, to campaign for her. And the Atlanta local released a statement that said, in essence, we only endorse socialists, but we understand that all of our friends and allies see this as a crucial election, and we certainly would encourage those of our members who are so inclined to join our friends and allies in working for her. And I think that's the kind of statement that the newly elected National Political Committee of of the National Organization of DSA should release after the Democratic uh, nomination is determined uh, vis-a-vis the presidential race. So that's 
what may happen if Joe Biden wins. And Joe Biden certainly is far from DSA positions. He's not a progressive at all. But what happens if Elizabeth Warren gets the nomination? Is DSA still going to refuse the campaign for her? Well, I think the national organization, uh, the best the national organization can do is to release a statement a la what the Atlanta local did about Stacey Abrams. I would hope this statement would also say that uh, Elizabeth Warren is uh, promoting the most serious progressive reforms to our economic system and modern memory for a presidential uh, nominee of a major party. And I would expect certainly the locals in swing states to to get behind her. But I don't think you would see, uh, based on this convention, I don't think you would see a formal endorsement from the national organization. Nor, nor, again, getting back to, you know, my mindset, nor do I think that would help. When socialist endorsements help, it's, you know, in, in city council races and local races in cities where there are lots of millennials and minorities and progressives, as in New York, which elected AOC to Congress, as in Chicago, which elected six uh, uh, DSA members to the city council, uh, when you get to the scope of a state, and certainly when you get to the scope of the United States, uh, I actually think it hurts more than it helps. So in terms of the long-term goal that DSA pointed to at its convention, not endorsing Democrats points to the creation of a third party eventually, doesn't it? Well, this was only on the presidential level. Uh, The locals endorse Democrats all the time, and it's assumed that they will because most socialists are in the Democratic Party. And in a sense, this is a vindication of the founding strategy of one of the uh, predecessor organizations, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, which under the, which was founded by, as was DSA, uh, Michael Harrington, who said, I can't think of any reason why socialists shouldn't run openly as socialists in the Democratic Party. You get more visibility that way. Uh, you don't play a spoiler role that way, and uh, that has worked out very well for DSA. So it's not at a general principle. It's specific to the presidential election this year. Of course, what to do about the Democrats has been a perennial problem for the left in America. You've reminded us about the CP in 1944, but of course there are some other highlights. 1968 comes to mind. That's true. But in 1968, the left was more estranged from the uh, mainstream Democratic Party, uh, which had been represented by Lyndon Johnson and then Hubert Humphrey in the 68 election because of the Vietnam War. And that was certainly, I think, going, I was around then, a greater rift than exists today between the left and the mainstream Democratic Party, which is moving left. You know, the House of Representatives passed a $15 uh, minimum wage hike, uh, which is a left position. More than 100 House members, all of them Democrats, uh, have signed on to Medicare for all. So th- there's a real difference, I think, now between the climate of the late 60s and today. And, and, and that difference is progressives are winning more now. Uh, and when they win, it's usually in the context of the Democratic Party, which is contested terrain, no doubt. There's a lot of elements of the Democratic Party that don't go along with any of that stuff. But the, the, the bulk of the uh, organizations and individuals and elected officials who do are Democrats. So I don't see quite that level of estrangement today. And do you want to say anything about other moments where uh, progressives differed from, challenged, debated whether to be part of the Democratic Party? 
this is, as you noted, uh, this is a perennial issue. And the Socialist Party, I mean, Norman Thomas ran six times for president, and Gene Debs ran five times for president. So there's always, there's always, there is a tradition of third-partyism. But, you know, I think Ralph Nader helped to kill that in, uh, in 2000 by his role in enabling George W. Bush to be elected. I think there's less third-party electoralism now, uh, even though uh, there's far greater identification with the left now in the population at large. Harold Meyerson, he wrote about DSA and Bernie or Bust for The American Prospect. You can read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, John. Maybe you heard about Jeffrey Epstein. He's the convicted pedophile and accused sex trafficker who surrounded himself with an elite network of political leaders, would-be billionaires, and even scientists. He's the one who committed suicide over the weekend. Katha Pollitt has been thinking about the people who have been named in court documents as having accepted invitations from Jeffrey Epstein and people also who had sex with the underage girls he provided. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Katha, welcome back. Oh, hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. So where should we start? Bill Clinton, how many times did he fly on Jeffrey Epstein's private jet? Well, it depends on who's counting. It was, I think, four flights, but they had different legs, so you could count each leg as a separate flight. There is actually no evidence that Clinton did anything bad having to do with Epstein. His spokesperson said there was always a, there were always staffers and secret security agents around him. And what was uh, the nickname for Jeffrey Epstein's private jet? The Lolita Express. And, you know, i got to say, this is so unfair. This shows how great literature flies (laughs) over the heads of so many people. Because Lolita, in the actual book by Nabokov, was not a tempting nymphette. She was an ordinary tweenie who was a kidnap and rape victim by the narrator of the book, Humbert Humbert, who was obsessed with her. But that was not the point of view of the book. The point of view of the book is how horrible Humbert Humbert is and how victimized Lolita was. Okay, that's, that's Bill Clinton on the misnamed Lolita Express. How about the horrible Alan Dershowitz? He said he did go to a party at Jeffrey Epstein's mansion in Florida, and he did get a massage there, but it was not from a teenage sex slave. He said it was, quote, from a old, old Russian woman, close quote, and he added, quote, I kept my underwear on during the massage, close quote. Uh, is this good news? It conjures up a picture that I don't like to contemplate. (laughs) He actually said, I think, a 50-year-old Russian woman named Olga. (laughs) (laughs) It's the details that count. You know, in in the light of all this, people have been uh, remembering some of the awful things Dershowitz has said and written in the past, and the fact that he defended so many men who are uh, very, very likely guilty of horrific crimes against women like O.J. and Klaus von Bülow. He wrote an op-ed defending lowering the age of consent on the very 
spurious grounds that if a woman, a girl, is old enough to consent to her own abortion without, like, parental consent, then she is old enough to have sex. That seems ridiculous to me. Those are very different circumstances. So he he thought we should get uh, lower the age of consent to, you know, oh, I don't know, 15, we could argue about 14. And interestingly, Jeffrey Epstein, I just read today, he had the same idea. He said, you know, in lots of societies, having sex with very young girls is perfectly okay. This is just a peculiarity of our weird modern life. (laughs) So we've covered Bill Clinton and Alan Dershowitz. How about Steven Pinker? He's the, the psychologist and would-be philosopher who says that life is good, better than it's ever been, and we don't appreciate it enough. He's one of the uh, Harvard professors who hobnobbed with Epstein, and there's a picture of him and Epstein smiling together. He also helped with Epstein's legal defense, conducted by Alan Dershowitz. Now he says, quote, I could never stand the guy, never took research funding from him, and always tried to keep my distance, close quote. What do you make of Steven Pinker in this context? I have no reason not to take him at his word. I mean, you can have your picture taken with anybody. And then if one of those people turns out to be a major criminal, it looks like you had a lot to do with them. Maybe you didn't. Binker says that his contribution to the defense of Jeffrey Epstein was on some obscure linguistics issue and that he did this as a favor to Dershowitz and really had no idea what it was all about. That's what he says. Okay, moving right along. It's not Dershowitz who bothers you the most in this story. It's not Woody Allen or Prince Andrew or even former Harvard president Larry Summers. What does bother you the most about this story? Well, what bothers me the most about this story is the scientists. I'm I'm very old-fashioned. I kind of think science is sort of great and that uh, scientists defend us from the vast, of nonsense that is rolling over us, whether it's, you know, Christian fundamentalism or racism, scientific racism or whatever. And so I'm a little disappointed in these people that allowed themselves to be collected by him um, and I think kind of humored him and uh, made perhaps in hopes of research funding, um, which he gave uh, to Harvard, and they keep saying this wasn't a lot of money, but $6.5 million, I don't know, that is a lot of money to me, and it was enough to found Harvard's Program for Evolutionary Dynamics. So I'm, I'm disappointed in these people. And could you, um, would you care to name any names in this context? Well, you know, okay, so here's Stephen Hawking, who is like world-famous hero, and he went to this conference on Epstein's private Caribbean island, and because he said he had never been in a submarine, unlike most of us, of course, uh, <laughs> he, he was taken for a ride in a submarine, and the submarine was driven or conducted or whatever you call it when it's a submarine by um, Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell was the procurus and major domo and right-hand woman of Jeffrey Epstein, who is now being sued in the U.K. by uh, one of his quote, sex slaves, unquote, for her role in all this uh, underage coercive sex. So, and another person who really bothers me is um, 
Lawrence Krauss, who's a theoretical physicist, and he's a big person in the, or was a big person in the skeptic community. And he said, can I quote this? It's really kind of amazing. He said, these people uh, did not, some of these people did not uh, care at all that he was uh, sent to prison, however, cushily in 2008 for soliciting prostitution. So Krauss said, oh, he poo-pooed the idea that Epstein's girls were underage. He said, as a scientist, I always judge things on empirical evidence. And he always has women ages 19 to 23 around him. (laughs) But I've never seen anything else. So as a scientist, my presumption is that whatever the problems were, I would believe him over other people. Now, the interesting thing about Krauss is that he had to, uh, chose to retire from Arizona State University in 2018 after accusations of sexual harassment spanning a decade and a university investigation that found he had grabbed a woman's breast. So you just get a sense of all these sleazy, sleazy people together. Um, there was another one, computer scientist Roger Shank, and he told Slate about these girls. I never actually believed this underage thing. They might have been in their early 20s or late teens, but when I talked to them, they were always in college or had just graduated college or something like that. They were not high school girls. So I love the way these men think they can precisely drill in on the age of these girls, like 19 to 23, not 18, not 24. It's pretty funny, I mean, in a horrible way. Did um, uh, Were there any scientists who have... Uh, acknowledge there was something wrong with this or who have apologized for their closeness to Epstein? Epstein? Exactly one. And that is the biologist George Church, who also teaches at Harvard, as many of these people do. Um, He said, there should have been more conversations about, should we be doing this? Should we be helping this guy? Uh, And he said that to the health news website stat. He said, there was just a lot of nerd tunnel vision. It's such a wonderful phrase. My next question for you. What is transhumanism? Transhumanism was something that Epstein was um, interested in, and it's improving the human race scientifically. And in his case, he wanted to do this by inseminating women, perhaps 20 at a time, with his own sperm on a ranch in New Mexico, his ranch in New Mexico. Um, And you ask yourself, now, how would that have worked like, these women all live together on this ranch till they have their babies or maybe afterwards, and does he support them while they raise this child alone? And <laughs> one of these scientists said, told him, well, you know, Jeffrey, this would never work because these women are going to have husbands, and the husband could be some awful person, and he could just screw up the whole experiment, as husbands have been known to do. <laughs> so this is about as smart as his other idea, um, which was to have his head and penis cryogenically stored. That means sort of flesh frozen in this special scientific way, cryogenically stored after his death for resuscitation in the future. And you just ask yourself, how could these brilliant guys have taken any of this seriously? We haven't said anything about Trump yet. Is Trump part of the Jeffrey Epstein story? Well, Trump... Trump and Jeffrey Epstein uh, were friends, you know, two Palm Beach millionaires interested in young women, what's not to like. And Trump says that he dropped Epstein after Epstein kind of put the moves on a daughter of one of the Mar-a-Lago guests. 
But an interesting thing about Trump is that he has been tweeting, that's not the surprise, of course, that he has retweeted conspiracy theories about the death of Epstein in prison. Hashtag Clinton body count and hashtag Clinton crime families. These are conspiracy theories that allege that the Clintons have murdered dozens, possibly hundreds of people. And they have been elaborately debunked by Snopes and others. And so for him to retweet that is putting the presidential seal of approval on, you know, real evil craziness. Katha Pollitt, she wrote about Jeffrey Epstein's Science of Sleaze for The Nation magazine. Thank you, Katha. Thank you for having me on the show. If you're into the nation's brand of no-holds-barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday hosted by Jamila King. It's called the Mother Jones Podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine. Think electoral skullduggery, dark money, and Trump's Russia connections, alongside informative interviews with Mother Jones reporters and newsmakers. The Mother Jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter told by their team of smart, fearless reporters. Subscribe now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts. Not long after Obama took office in 2009, the Homeland Security Department predicted that the combination of the first black president with the economic downturn of that election year of 2008 and the rise of social media would make white nationalist violence a growing threat in America. Republicans at the time pushed back, arguing that the left was trying to divert attention from Islamic extremism, and the Obama administration rescinded that threat assessment. That was 2009. And then just last week, after the El Paso killings by a white nationalist, Tucker Carlson said on Fox News that white supremacy was, quote, not a real problem in America. He called it, quote, a hoax, just like the Russia hoax. It's a conspiracy theory used to divide the country and keep a hold on power, close quote. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation and host of the new podcast, Next Left. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, let's note that Monday this week was the second anniversary of the Charlottesville white nationalist rally. It was called Unite the Right. That's the one where a neo-Nazi drove a car into a crowd of counter-protesters at high speed and killed Heather Heyer. That was two years ago. 
And last week, of course, that white nationalist killed 22 people in El Paso and injured two dozen. I want to go back to this history of the Obama threat assessment back in 2009 that seems so prescient. What do we know now about why it was rescinded? Well, we know that this acknowledgement of white nationalism, of white supremacist politics, and that which extends from it, this acknowledgement that it exists, that it is real, is very political, right? It is something that clearly some people don't want to be talked about. Remember that in the early era, early days of the Obama presidency, the Obama administration really wanted to try and work across lines of difference. Yeah. Really wanted to, you know, find common ground, quote. Remember, this is one of the most fascinating things about, the, about President Obama's uh, early stages. He was elected by a landslide. He swept in Democrats in the House and Senate, but they still had to work with Republicans to some extent. And he was so very willing, so very determined to do it. And I think genuinely believed in the possibility of, of taking that next step. Back in 2009, Obama Secretary of Homeland Security was Janet Napolitano. She's the one who withdrew officially the threat assessment. The report's primary author left the government. The department's unit dedicated to tracking domestic terrorism was essentially disbanded. So if in 2009, a new black president and an economic downturn made for the rise of white nationalist extremism. Why didn't, in 2017, a new white president and an economic boom make for the decline of white nationalist extremism? When you have a president who doesn't want to try and unite people, who doesn't want to try and find common ground, but in fact is viscerally divisive, uh, who uses divisive language, divisive tactics, then you go to a whole new stage, which, to be honest, I don't think that the FBI anticipated it at the level, or that the Homeland Security folks anticipated at the level that we've reached now. Back in 2009, one of the Republicans who pushed back against the threat assessment that that domestic terrorism by white nationalists was a danger. One of the Republicans who pushed back was a congressman from Kansas named Mike Pompeo. He said focusing on domestic terrorism was, quote, a dangerous undertaking and an expression of political correctness and that it denied the threat posed by radical Islamic terrorism. Remind us, what is Mike Pompeo's job today? Well, Mike Pompeo is now the Secretary of State as I understand. Um, And, you know, look, Pompeo came up as a a, a tool of the Koch brothers and of this sort of uh, billionaire-generated, quote-unquote, populism of the Tea Party and all sorts of other things. And if you wanted to spend a show, John, talking about the things that Mike Pompeo has been wrong about... yes. You know, we'd have to set aside several days on that. (laughs) But um, amazingly enough, you know, in this Trump administration, being wrong, being fundamentally wrong, historically wrong again and again and again, does not disqualify you from a cabinet-level post. 
Trump's Secretary of Homeland Security was Kirsten Nielsen. She sought, we are told, a regular meeting with Trump to brief him on domestic terrorism. Did those briefings ever take place? Donald Trump has shown very little interest in this. I think we know the briefings that should have occurred did not. Uh, you know, this is the important thing to understand. There are people around Trump who are concerned, who are protective, and then a third grouping who are basically enabling. The concerned folks, I, I, you know, most of them have been pushed out, right? And In, let us and, say, let us say, including Kirsten Nielsen. Yes, of course. <laughs> the list is long. And as they've moved out, then you've got the protective folks. They may, they may not be the folks that, they may actually be folks that would like Trump to be more cautious in his language, to recognize some of these threats, because they're real and they, they should be addressed. Some of those folks are still around, uh, without a doubt. But the, the troubling thing is that the enabling folks, so many of them have remained you know, the, the folks who really do encourage Trump to use language of invasion, uh, talk about, you know, threats that are violent. And, you know, when you do this, when you point to your political rivals, to some in the media, and to whole groups of people, immigrants, people who are coming to this country, people who've been in this country for a long time, who you are angry with, upset with, want to demonize, want to, you know, turn into the other. You know, when, when you do that, as the President of the United States, on a regular basis, you communicate ways of thinking. And you, in my opinion, legitimize, I put quotes around that, legitimize in the minds of, of folks who were, you know, kind of way on the edge, a sense that their ideas, their extreme and dangerous ideas, are somehow appropriate. You know, it, it, you don't have to, you know, quote-unquote, call them to action. It's simply that you constantly go back to this notion that there is an invasion, that there is a threat, that there is a danger, and ultimately there are going to be folks who hear that. We've been talking about inside the Trump White House Outside the Trump White House, are there any signs that there are Republicans in Congress who are willing now to acknowledge that white nationalist violence is a growing threat? Are there any Republicans who object to Trump cultivating these white nationalists? There's a handful of them, and, and the interesting thing is they're, they're pretty easily identified by the likelihood that they're quitting Congress. You've had a few of these folks continue to speak up, but it hasn't come from the leadership, and it hasn't come from, you know, any of the, the centers of power in the party. In fact, it's, it's really the opposite, John. You've had a real pushback on this from Republican leaders who simply have made it clear they don't see this as an issue or this central issue. They're not, they're certainly not speaking up in the way that they should. And then on their favorite TV network, Fox, you've had people saying that, you know, white supremacy, you know, this white nationalism is a hoax, despite the, the evidence, the overwhelming evidence that has come from folks at the Southern Poverty Law Center and other places where they actually track the threats and track the violence. 
John Nichols, he wrote about Tucker Carlson on white supremacy being a hoax for thenation.com. John, thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. I'm a